This program is released under a Creative Commons license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. This is Christ the Center, episode 29. This week we speak with Derek Thomas about the pastor and the academy. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and this is our 29th episode. And let me introduce to you the men that we have on the phone. We have James Dalzell, who's in the studio with me. He's a Ph.D. student at Westminster Theological Seminary. We also have Nick Batzig, who is interim pastor at Christ the King, PCA in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. Also joining us is Jeff Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. And our special guest this morning is Dr. Derek Thomas, who is John Richards Professor of Practical and Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. He's also a pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Good morning, guys. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. We're really excited, as we always are, when we have a special guest. Today we're going to be speaking about the pastor and the academy and the interchange or the relationship between the church and theological study. First, we wanted to address and announce any new books or any new conferences, anything that our listeners would be interested in. Jeff, uh, James, or Nick, did you see anything new? Uh, let's see, in terms of books, uh, of course, uh, the, uh, the new edition of Defense of the Faith by Cornelius Van Til is out. Uh, Which we should say is the 1955 edition. It's substantially longer than one most people have been used to reading. That that's correct. Uh, he he interacts with uh, critics of his position uh, at some length. Anyway, that's now available. Uh, that also, of course, has a nice introduction and annotated notes by Scott uh, Oliphant. And you you'd mentioned those are set apart nicely in a different font, similar yeah, to the Bonson work. Actually, what they've also done is uh, material that he takes, uh, that, that Dr. Van Til took from other syllabuses, uh, is also set in a different font. So you've got like three, three fonts work at work in that book. Excellent. To give you a clue that something is included from another, another syllabus and also uh, to set off of the notes that mm-hmm. Dr. Oliphant has supplied. Uh, what else? We've been mentioning in the last couple of weeks uh, Derek's book, uh, What is Providence, a little booklet from PNR. Uh, I thumbed through that. Our church has a copy. That's a really good one to have, especially you can hand those those little booklets out to your church members, and they're, uh, they can tackle them a little bit easier than a, than a really large volume. Now, were you saying, uh, Camden, that your church has one copy? <laughs> <laughs> You're sharing that, passing it around? <laughs> You're right. We need to. We've got our our box coming uh, in, in the future, and we'll be passing those complimentary copies out to each each uh, each member here in the future. Derek, I wanted to ask: Was that a lecture you gave, or was that from sermons, or was that something you wrote independent of any preaching or teaching? Um, I'm. I'm still contemplating retiring on the proceeds of the sale of that one copy. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, a bit of both. Uh, I actually did my doctoral work on Providence um, and Calvin 
uh, you know, a good while ago now. And so providence has been one of those things that emerges in my preaching and, and teaching a good bit. Um, but but the book itself, or the, it's only a booklet, of course, but it was written to order, and um, I enjoyed writing it. I hope it's of some help, especially to those who are facing particular trials and, and asking those those big and awkward questions of why and why me and why now and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, is there much interplay between that, that book and the recent events at your church that, that, uh, that birthed uh, the recent book from Ligon Duncan? I forget the title of it. What was it, Jeff? On, on, on death? Yes. Yeah. Um, You're not. No, there was no there was no tie at all. Ligon okay. did what I what I called from the pulpit one morning the death lunches. <laughs> um, there were a series of uh, six or seven lunchtime meetings uh, on the subject of death and dying, mm. and we all thought there was a need for that in the congregation, but didn't realize just how popular the the series would be mm-hmm. and. What would normally have been, you know, maybe 150 people turned into four or 500 people uh, mm. attending. And um, I think it just continues to show how some of these issues are extremely pastoral and uh, that no matter how many times you, you speak on certain issues about death and the intermediate state and... Uh, the, it's something that needs to be repeated over and over and over, and um, we were we were both encouraged and surprised just how um, how well that series went down. Mm. And the book is available, uh, published by uh, Reformed Academic Press. Who's the publisher for the Van Til book? Uh, PNR. PNR. They're running that this series uh, of reprints. They've done Christian apologetics, I believe, back in two thousand three, under uh, William Edgar's editing, and then they redid last year Systematic Theology, again edited by William Edgar, and then Defense of the Faith. I don't know if they have planned any other ones. Uh, Jeff, you and I were talking about that. Have you heard anything? I've not heard anything about further titles uh, at this point, but I haven't asked. Yeah, it would make sense, but we don't know. We're just speculating on that at this point. I would think uh, common grace in the gospel mm-hmm. were worth doing, or Christian theistic evidences right. might be handy. There, there are there are a few we would recommend if they were going to do that. But uh, anyhow, uh, I would, uh, something else I was uh, thinking of here. Oh, you noticed uh, Richard Muller? I, I I don't remember if we've already commented on this, but Richard Muller's Christ in the Decree. Okay. Uh, is due out again in a paperback. Jeff, do you know if that's been altered from the original uh, format? Uh, what I can see, it says repackaged, which is usually means that there's no change. Right. Uh, what I don't remember is, is maybe Derek remembers. Was that one of the books that looked like it had been done on a typewriter? It was. Okay, so maybe it's reset. Maybe it's typeset. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like those old Van Til books. It's, it was a stream right. of consciousness from, uh, from Richard Muller. <laughs> uh, not, not easy reading. In the vein of uh, a James Joyce. <laughs> but this is definitely one that, uh, yeah, even though it's not easy reading, it's uh, one that should be read, in my opinion. Mm. 
I mean, it's I, essentially I believe, his, his dissertation, right? Uh, Duke. Yeah, I believe yes, there I believe. was uh, an edition of it that emerged after that first typewriter um, version, and I, I, I do believe that it was properly set at one time. Mm. Uh, I still have the original typewriter version of it. Yes, um, I have as a silver cover, I think. Yeah, the typewriter look to it. Yeah, and I think I think a proper version actually did emerge after that hmm. from Labyrinth Press, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Were there any other new new publications or reissues oh, I was worthy of mentioning? I was going to say, you notice that they're redoing the Expositor's Bible Commentary, uh, originally edited by Frank Gebeline hmm. back in the '80s, late '70s, early '80s. I have the set right here at our feet. Yeah. It's, oh, the original or the new set? No, the the original. Yeah. Uh, I'm using it as an ottoman actually no. right now. <laughs> the uh, there's well there's the original tan cover and now and then there was the black cover for the re re. Uh, yes, that's right. And and now the new edition, which is edited by Tremper Longman and David Garland, uh, has been coming out, and apparently the Romans Galatians. The uh, top of the volume is due out in this month at some point. And who's publishing that? Uh, I believe that would be Zondervan. Okay. The original, yeah, it is Zondervan, the original publishers of the uh, the set. Now, the contributors to this particular volume are Everett Harrison, Donald Hagner, uh, Verlin, uh, Ver, it says Vergrugi, but I believe it should be Verbrugge. Uh <laughs> And Murray Harris and Donald Garlington. Uh, it remains to be seen whether the, the revisions are as useful as the original, but I'll leave that one alone. <laughs> uh, just in my opinion. Yeah. For what it's worth. Uh, that's about, I think that's about it. Well, we wanted to have you on, Dr. Thomas, to speak, uh, as I mentioned earlier, about the relationship of the church to the academy particularly we want to focus i think on the the life and the work of the pastor and uh what we find nowadays in in broader evangelicalism let me preface that is is what seems to be uh, a false dichotomy between the two and you uh personally are in a unique situation in which you are both a pastor at rts jackson and a and uh, well, I'll get that back backwards. You're a professor at RTS Jackson and a pastor at First Presbyterian Church, so you have your feet, so to speak, uh, in in each uh, territory. Um, how maybe we should start with some uh, basic uh, questions of how how should the pastor think about his job in shepherding his flock, but also in uh, in learning and growing and keeping abreast of uh, theological study. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I should perhaps preface it by saying that I've, I've been a pastor and at least an ordained minister for 30-plus years um, before coming here to Jackson, Mississippi mm. um, and to the center of the universe. I was in um, I was in Belfast in Northern Ireland. I was a minister of a downtown area uh, university-type church uh, for 18 years and um, loved that, would have, would have stayed there for the rest of my life had I, had I not been 
pressed by someone called Ligon Duncan to come <laughs> uh, to Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I had no particular uh, aspirations for being a professor um, at a seminary. I, I have vivid memories of the hard time I gave my own professors and <laughs> had no real desire to walk into that. Um, and, and more positively, I, j- I just loved the ministry and I, I still think that in, just personally, I, I, I wouldn't want to teach at the academy if I wasn't firmly planted in the church at the same time. Uh, and I, I recognize that I do have something, not, not, I mean, it's not altogether unique. Uh, several of my colleagues do something similar, maybe not quite as much as, as I do, but um, I, I, and the, the minister, I've, I've always had a view that a minister should be well-trained, and uh, I, I think that, that the traditional view of, of seminary training as a basic requirement, uh, you know, we all talk about exceptions to the rule, and I, I, I tell my students, you know, that if you're a Spurgeon, uh, you know, you may, you, may get a, you may get that exception, but believe me, you're not a Spurgeon. Um, <laughs> And, and therefore, the traditional view of what is required in terms of um, undergraduate and postgraduate work for, um, you know, for setting apart uh, a faithful minister of the word, I think, I think is a is a right one. I I lament a little these days as to what our students actually know upon graduation compared, say, to what somebody walking out of Princeton a hundred years ago might have known, um, or for that matter, what they might have known walking out of Calvin's Academy in Geneva um, in the uh, middle of the 16th century. Um, and I, you know, I'm not sure I really wanted to do that research because I think it would depress me a little. Um, I've always been a reader and I've always been somebody who's loved books. Uh, so I, I have all of those predispositions to to um, the academy and learning. And, you know, if I wanted to justify all of that, uh, you know, I, I think Paul and his bring the books and uh, bring the, the cloak and especially the parchments mm-hmm. passage, you know, tells me that ministers ought to be those who love um, love reading and love uh, love research and uh, I think we ought to be as skilled uh, practitioners in expounding the Bible as we possibly can be I I do a lot of traveling and um, I'm always I'm always disappointed when I walk into a senior minister's study uh, as I frequently do and you know, I look around and I, I look at the shelves and I look to see what's on the minister's desk and and you know some, some of these some of these offices are like nothing that I've ever experienced to get into my office you, you have to wait a minute while I move certain things <laughs> and get in um, and Frankly, you know, I, I, all too often I look at the shelves and I see books, books that are very familiar to me, but they're books that they would have bought while they were at seminary. Mm. You know, they're, they're seminary textbooks, and, and they're there and they're clean and they're, they, they look good, 
but they don't show much evidence of having been read after seminary. And uh, mm. and and sometimes what's on the desk can be fairly disappointing in terms of. I mean, they're not bad books, but they're they're just popular books. And and um, I think uh, I think the ministry can so easily turn into something that's just a mere profession, uh, requiring certain certain skills and sometimes sometimes all too often business skills you know that that that's my that's my disappointment that i that i often uh, that i often see yeah i, I was just going to say derek i had the privilege of going through dr boyce's library with linda boyce mm. about five months ago and we went through every book that was in his library at 10th press and he had underlined almost in almost every book it was evident this man had read the majority of what he had and that was really impressive because I, you know, I tend to see a lot of men, like you say, they have books and they just don't read them that much. And there seems to be definitely a correlation between, you know, his study and his, God's blessing on his preaching and his ministry. Yeah, that's uh, that's a fascinating. Um, I, I wish I could have been with you to see that. Um, and and you know Jim Boyce was was an extraordinary man, but in his preaching, you know he didn't he didn't necessarily parade that learning. If you read his sermons, uh, he, he certainly knows how to pitch a sermon at a level that that people can understand. So you don't you don't get a sense in his sermons that he's that he's that he's bookish. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, in, in order to be that that great communicator that he obviously was, um, what, one one needs to keep abreast and one needs to keep on studying. And um, I I made the decision when I came here. Um, I'd been eighteen years in Belfast preaching um, expository sermons. Uh, consecutive expository sermons along the lectio continuum sort of method um, for 18 years. So I'd, I had a lot of sermons in the barrel, as you might say. But I made the decision when I actually came here to throw most of them away. Uh, these weren't; they were, these were mostly handwritten notes, but and long before laptops and stuff. Um, only because I just did not want to be tempted to repeat what I had done to force me into continually preparing new and fresh sermons. So, uh, you know, that's still my pattern. Uh, You know, every week I'm I'm preparing something new. And uh, I I, I like that. I think it keeps keeps you fresh and keeps you you stimulated, uh, asking questions of Scripture maybe that you've not asked before. Um, there's always new light uh, within the bounds of orthodoxy to uh, to find on a on a passage. Derek, you've you've said uh, before that you're not really interested in doctrine that can't be preached. Um, something I've heard at least on audio you say a couple of times. Um, could you could you explain what that means in terms of? I think when most of us look at a at a tome of systematic theology or a specialized study in a in the field of theology, uh, we wonder to ourselves how how can this be preached? Or even if we even if we love or appreciate what we're reading, we think how 
how am I ever going to get this to my people? I mean, they're not, they're not going to come into our studies. At least my experience in the pastorate was not that uh, anybody in my church came into my study and, and asked me about the volumes that I loved. And yet you say, as an example, uh, Dr. Boyce was not bookish. Um, how do you relate the two that you don't really, you're not really interested in theology that can't be preached, uh, and, yet, and yet you expect pastors to read? Could you kind of work out what that might look like? Yeah, I, I remember listening to a sermon, um, a senior sermon at the seminary in 1977, I think it was. Uh, and, and he was a friend of mine. Um, and the topic of the sermon was the authorship of Second Peter. And um, it, it was what, what you might expect it to have been. Uh, it was a regurgitation of... Um, uh, probably Simon Kistemacher's notes on uh, on why he thought Peter was the author of Second Peter. Hmm. Um, I uh, I think I, I mean I do say fairly frequently uh, that I'm not interested in theology that I can't preach, and by that I mean there are certain aspects of theology certain aspects of philosophical theology for me that are, I'm glad somebody's doing it, uh, and it needs to be done, and um, ideas need to be engaged in, but uh, frankly, I'm, I'm glad that they, can, that they can do that and give me the results of it. Sure. Um, now, on my desk, you know, I, I have right next to me here Richard Muller's the unaccommodated Calvin, hmm. uh, which is not easy reading. Um, so, so by that statement, I don't mean I, I just want theology light. Um, I, I do think that it's part of, it's actually part of the professor's duty as well as the pastor's duty to so make theology so that it is, it is accessible. Sure. Um, I, I think that our sermons should be theological as well as expositional uh, and applicatory. And uh, I, I think I think the theology is the structure around which uh, all discourse um, from Scripture must take place. Uh, the debate between biblical and systematic theology, and notwithstanding, it's a rather silly debate. You, you can't talk about the part unless you are aware of the whole, mm-hmm. and vice versa. And, and it's as simple as that. And, and, and the one needs the other. But, but in in making and pronouncing theological statements, one one certainly needs to be aware of theology uh, and the contours um, of theology. But I think that there are certain uh, aspects of theology that become so um, esoteric that, that they become that they are divorced from uh, the lives of of men and women and I think that part of my duty as a, as a pastor is to bring that into a form and that is accessible to them because I do believe that if, that if it is part of um the system of theology 
um, that can be derived from Scripture. I do believe that it's important, um, but I also believe uh, I also believe that that it's my duty to to ask myself the question: How do I preach this? Sure. How how do I bring this into a into a sermon that is that is that is faithful to the exegesis of the text? Um, you know, and that's a lifelong um, discipline in trying to answer that question. And um, and and I'm not for one minute suggesting that I've I've got all of the answers to that question, but um, I'm always wanting in the classroom. I mean, my students accuse me every now and then, and somebody did this past week. Uh, I was teaching one of these horrid courses that are foisted upon you these days where you teach 39 hours of lectures in one week. <laughs> Is wow. this your trip um, to Peru? This was after my trip to Peru. Okay. I, came, I came back from Peru and then taught a one-week course in systematics, and you know, by Wednesday afternoon, most of the students are comatose. <laughs> and by by Friday morning, you can just see them longing to go home. And um, all the while, all the while, I I keep sort of moving. So they tell me from being a, a, a lecturer to a preacher. And I love it when they accuse me of that. Now, sometimes the accusation is made somewhat negatively, you know. You're preaching now instead of lecturing, um, but frankly, I'm 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 never put out when that accusation is made. I I I think that I think that our seminary students need pastoring as much as those in uh, in the pew on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. um, and my own heart needs pastoring, and um, I, I think that you know when I read um, John Piper's um, uh, brothers, we are not professionals. Mm. Um, and I read a similar um, comment from uh, Ian Murray's new biography of Martin Lloyd Jones, which, by the way, is a is a marvelous volume. Um, now, for for the. The, the diehards, the, 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 there's the two massive volumes uh, that he wrote. Uh, you have to plow through volume one with all those Welsh names. <laughs> and, uh, and W's. You know, that's probably the test of your manliness, whether you can actually read both <laughs> volumes of Ian Murray and Lloyd-Jones, uh, every single word of it. But it was probably unrealistic to expect most people to, to do that. And the fact that he's brought out this fairly small, uh, compact biography of Lloyd-Jones, with some new material in it, in fact, um, is good. And there was a similar quote in the opening pages from Lloyd-Jones, delivered somewhere somewhere just after the Second World War, um, on the issue of, of the fear of the ministry becoming a profession, which reminded me of John Piper. Uh, just the very phraseology of the quotation was very similar, uh, and I, I I do think that's a very real danger that, that we that we turn both the academy and the pulpit into a mere profession. Um, mm. I, I think the danger is on both levels: um, professors of theology uh, who live merely for the academy and for whom the church has 
has insufficient emphasis. And I think that, that the whole point of this is the church. I just read uh, one of Carl Truman's articles in his volume, The Wages of Spin. He has a really interesting article called Theology in the Church, Divorce or Remarriage? Question mark. And I, there was a quote in there just about that very topic. It said, Old Medieval and Reformation, this was in the idea of uh, the Old Medieval and the Reformation Church, that theology pursued at the highest academic level was to terminate in a unified academic discipline focused upon the needs of the church. Mm-hmm. And we oftentimes find, uh, well, it, it's not, you don't, we don't have to go too far to find uh, academicians who don't think that way or pastors who, uh, who don't think that way either. Right, and you know, I've, I've spent a lot of my time reading and studying Calvin, um, and you know, Calvin's famous phrase from his commentary on uh, the Psalms, you know, "Brevitas et simplicitas." Um, mm. I, I think when you read Calvin's sermons, you you don't you don't you don't get the impression that here is an abstruse esoteric theologian. You know, Calvin Calvin could hold court with any theologian that has ever lived. Um, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't put my money on anyone else but Calvin in a in a in a fist fight, theological fist fight, um with with any theologian past or present. Um but yet when you read his sermons, um they they come across as yes, there's there's just volumes and volumes of learning that's gone in to these statements, but the statements themselves are, are set in such a way that that the average person, I think, in Geneva was more than capable of understanding what he was saying. Um, and I, I love that about him. Um, but here he is in the academy all week, and, and then at a lunchtime, uh, in Geneva, at St. Peter's, or or on the Lord's Day, um, he's turning all of his vast learning uh, into sermons and into feeding um, the flock. And um, that's the sort of pattern uh, I want to try and emulate. Doc- Dr. Thomas, what would you have to say to someone who came to you wanting to talk about uh, in the church, the need to be culturally relevant, um, and then thereby pitting the academy and the church, um, somebody that would maybe have a lower doctrinal uh, appreciation. Um, have you had students ask you that, or have you thought through how you would answer someone that came to you asking you that? Yes, it's a sort of trendy question that comes up a lot these days. Um, I'd be tempted to give them uh, Don Carson's new book Mm. um, and ask them, you know, to give me a summary of it because what you might expect when when you first open those pages of of Don's book on um, Christ and culture uh, revisited uh, is, is not probably what you get when you actually read the book. Um, I, I suspect that some folk will ask that question about cultural relevance have as a, a, a presupposition 
um, that theology and culture cannot live together in the same environment. And I, I sometimes get the impression that that cultural rele- relevance is code for uh, theologically light. Right. I, I, I sometimes get the impression that cultural relevance is actually code for antinomianism. Mm. Um, mm. I, I just want to appear to be hip, uh, and I'm going to clothe this in the garb of uh, Kuyperianism or Calvinism or Deweyverdianism or something, um, but it just means I, w- I want to be able to smoke my cigar and have my six-pack and, and you know, go to the movies. Uh, and do so as a as a relevant hip Calvinist, um, without actually engaging, you know, some very necessary <laughs> biblical principles as to what cultural engagement actually means. Um, I, I also think that sometimes cultural engagement is misdirected as as a sort of accusation that gospel preaching and expository preaching. Um, is not the way to engage, you know, post-modernity or the 21st yes. century or, or whatever, and, and, and that the way to do it is a combination of, of what is a mixture of um, mercy ministry, um, emergent-type emphases, um, uh, rather than um, a, an emphasis on traditional um, preaching, teaching, pastoring. Mm, right. Um, and I'm not sure that folk who ask these questions are asking, you know, what is the relationship between the church and culture? What is the relationship between, between the individual and culture? Or for that matter, what what do we mean by culture in the first place? Um, right. So the question, the question is rather, is rather complex, um, but I do suspect sometimes that there's an, an agenda afoot that I'm not always wanting to buy into. On that note, there's also the, uh, the danger that, that theology, uh, the, the desire to be culturally relevant um, and how theology relates to that ends up causing theology to undergo a kind of change in which theology is is brought into a submission to sociology. Yes, I, right. I maybe Jeffrey can identify with this even even in trying to uh, do my external course requirements in a PhD program. I'm I'm looking to do. Uh, I was looking to do systematic theology requirements at, at other universities or, or divinity schools. Uh, and it seemed to me that though the traditional categories of theology were used, as I look at the course descriptions, uh, the course descriptions were really uh, going to be uh, lectures in sociology, kind of hot political topics, more than in uh, theology in any traditional sense. And so... If, give an example, uh, James, is uh, one course I took and the school will remain nameless. Uh, basically, that's what happened. It was supposed to be a, a course on uh, uh, Christ- the history of Christian ethics. Uh, it ended up actually becoming uh, a worse, to, worse than sociology, per se. It became a commentary on uh, the war in Iraq. Even when we were supposed to be reading someone like Augustine or Calvin, uh, 
So, but theology does get uh, morphed, if you will, right? Right. No, that's right. I mean, I, I had looked at a course description of a, and I'll, I'll leave the school nameless as well, of course. It wasn't Westminster, I'll suffice it to say, offering a course in the Trinity. And I thought, you know, a, a course in the Trinity at a PhD level would be a, an engaging thing. And, and what it turns out to be is, is really a course on, uh, on women's liberation and, and women uh, ordination, uh, and how how the Trinity was commandeered uh, to sort of front a you know women's oh, liberation. Oh, but you've not heard you've not heard that Sophia is at the heart of the Trinity. <laughs> Christa, not Christa. And, and Christa. what is it? Mother, mother, womb, and what was what's, what's the triad? Oh, uh, well, I've heard know, divine I, rainbow and and something. I'm some sure if I, I missed the reimagining conference. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if I had enrolled, I would have found that out and been much better for it. But uh, just just saying that that theology also sometimes it's theology light and sometimes it's theology rewritten entirely. That's a great point. Yeah, D- Doctor Thomas, um, I have another question on preaching. Uh, if someone came to you and they said you were preaching at this church, and an elder came to you and said, you know, we would like you to tone down your preaching because people in the area would not understand what you're talking about. Um, you know, I often think of Whitfield preaching to the coal miners and a woman criticized him and said, why are you preaching to these ignorant coal miners? You know, they're not going to remember what you say. And he said, um, I'm not expecting them to remember everything I say. I'm expecting them to come under the preaching of the word. Um, but I feel like we have a real push in America, even in Reformed churches, for preaching to those that are outside the church by toning down the message. How would you answer someone that that asked you to do that? Yes, I mean, I often wonder what it would be like um, listening to Paul preaching. Mm. And if, for example, um, Romans reflects um, some some aspects of his of his sermonic output, as it may well do. Um, you know, there are things in Paul that are hard to be understood, and um, yeah, there, there's a, there is a legitimate sense in which that criticism could be made. I, I've I have been guilty of it, I'm pretty sure, on occasions. I remember listening to I remember listening to Ligon, and this is Ligon Duncan now, with whom I, I, I work at the church. I, he is my boss, let, let me say, <laughs> listening to this. I am his humble servant. <laughs> so, he, so he is a real person. He's not a mythical I, figure. I, I carry wow. his bags. I... I I make sure that his Facebook page is kept <laughs> And my one goal in life is to have more friends on Facebook than he does. Yes, that's great. Um, but I remember one Sunday morning at the 11 o'clock service, and this is the one that goes out on TV, uh, all of a sudden he was, he, was, he was talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, and he was in full flight, and, and he wasn't looking at any notes, and he, and he never does have much by way of notes anyway. Uh, and I saw him sort of half close his eye and, and he looked sort of at about 45 degrees upwards. And I thought, wait for it, something's going to come out now. And he said, 
you know, God is not an undifferentiated monad. And there was silence. <laughs> and it probably only lasted, you know, a, a quarter of a second or half a second or something, but it felt as if this silence was one of those awkward silences on live TV. And I looked around the congregation, and, I, and everyone was, was glued at him thinking, what did he just say? <laughs> and, and some of the women, the groupies, are writing this down furiously. <laughs> I mean, they're scribbling it on their programs. God is, n how do you spell monad? Uh, God is not an undifferentiated monad. And, and I thought, you know, in, in abstraction, you would never say that in a sermon. I would tell my students, you know, you don't say God is not an undifferentiated monad in a sermon. And yet, there was more conversation about that one sentence hmm. for the next, I mean, some of them made, made a joke of it, but actually it, it, was, it was fascinating to watch how, and this is, you know, I'm talking about something that happened five or six years ago now, um, but people still remember it. And it became a very useful tool um, to actually talk about some, some important aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, of, of that there is plurality within the oneness, and, uh, or differentiation within the oneness. And, um, uh, and that came about by saying something that, frankly, probably 99% and, 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 and maybe 100% didn't understand when, when it first emerged. So not everything, not everything in a sermon has to be perfectly understood. Uh, I've, I've come to appreciate the fact that, that, that every now and then you do have to say something to stretch people. Um, I... I I, th I, think, I think that preaching, especially, especially a form of didactic preaching, needs to be pitched at a level that actually stretches people to think. Mm. Now, I, I want to say that very carefully. I, I don't want that to be misused. Um, you know, I, I, I hear the directory for public worship saying um, about the perspicuity of preaching as much as the perspicuity of Scripture, um, you know, that, that folk who hear preaching need to be able to conclude how you actually got that from the text. You know, and that's, that's, that's a marvelous, marvelous statement in um, the Directory for Public Worship in, in 1645, that those who hear preaching need, need to be able to discern how you got that from the text. Um, I, I love that. When you look down at the text and you, and you say to yourself, yes, I can see that. Actually, I could have seen that for myself. That may not necessarily be true, but you may think that. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a sign of a really good preacher. So, so I, I, I believe in preaching so as to cultivate a, um, a, a sort of milieu of perspicuity when it comes to preaching and its relationship to Scripture. But I think every now and then, as you have in Paul, I mean, Paul can say some things every now and then that stretch you and that, that cause you yes. to, have to have to think and ask questions. Hmm. Um, well, even Peter said there, there's much that Paul's written that's just difficult to understand. 
Sure. And I, I, th- I think it would be wrong of us to take that and run with it and say, well, right. you know, we can, we can preach at a level that nobody understands. But we shouldn't be afraid um, of it at times when it's necessary. Sure. Hmm. Uh, I got a question for you, Derek. Uh, should pastors uh, be concerned with um, uh, writing uh, books for the church, or is that something that should be limited to professors at seminaries? Oh, that's a great question, and I think that anybody who can write in such a way as to help the church ought to be encouraged to do it. Uh, and I think it's, I, I mean, I wouldn't for one second suggest that, that that is a ministry that ought to be confined to professors uh, in seminary. Uh, in, fact, in fact, the opposite. Uh, some of the most helpful books some of the most helpful books that I know are written by those who are actually in pulpits and not those who are in, 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 uh, in the academy. And, and frankly, sometimes, sometimes one, you know, you open a brand new commentary that's 850 pages when actually it could have been 250 um, <laughs> had this person... Yeah, I don't. Wanna, I don't. I certainly don't want to mention names, but but sometimes sometimes you can see how divorced they are from from the church, mm. and um, uh, my first book that I ever wrote, um, you know, I was I was just a minister of a church, and and um, I had scribbled something and showed it to Sinclair Ferguson, and it was. Sinclair encouraged me to have it published, um, and it wasn't written for seminary students. And some of the things I've written have, have, I, I think, I think some of my students sort of sniff at them and think, you know, this is beneath them. And frankly, I say to them, you know, I, I didn't write it with you in view. I, I wrote it for the church, and um, I think that we have, at this moment in our history, a great need, I think, to try and teach our folk in church the value of, of reading and good reading. And it's becoming more and more difficult to do that. Yes. So how, um, do, you, how do you do that? Yeah. Well, that's a question I would love to have your input on, uh, because, <laughs> uh, you, you know, First, First Prayers in Jackson is, is not your average church. Uh, you know, I fully realize that. You know, we we have uh, we have folk who do an enormous amount of reading in the church. But but if you if you actually tabulated it, it the number of people who who never read one one decent book from one year to the next, um, you know, is is large. Um, and frankly, part of that is that we need to train our students the value of books, and not just the value of books for themselves, but the value of books as a teaching tool, as, as an extension of their ministry. The part of my ministry, you know, is not, I mean, if, if, if all my ministry is the, the half-hour window I have with them on Sunday morning, you know, I'm assuming now that we're not in the ideal world where we actually bring them back on Sunday evening, it's, it's one of those areas where where we have even more difficulty than our predecessors do. Yeah. Um, 
if we don't have an evening service and 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 when i when i ask my students who are going out to to plant churches are you going to have an evening service and they say no and i and i look at them and i say well why on earth would you not want to have an evening service and why would you not want to have the ability to teach these folk twice rather than just once oh, anyway but that, that's 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 a soapbox um but if all I have of them is 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 half an hour on a Sunday morning, you know I have to see that part part of the extension of our of our ministry as pastors is through good literature, and I think having a book table um, is the is the very minimum that we can do. Um, I think ministers are constantly should constantly bring good books to the attention of people, um, you know, drop a word about it in a sermon, mm-hmm. um, make sure that the bookstore manager at the church knows about it if you're doing that, because he goes ballistic if you say, you know, you all should be reading this book, and they'll go and ask him afterwards, do we have this book, and he has one copy. <laughs> um, right. But I think that, you know, we all have church bulletins, or we all have... have uh, email a regular uh, regular email contact or a, or an electronic version of a of a bulletin that that uh, or, a, or a newsletter that goes out from the church and i think the part of that ministry is constantly recommending books studying books having book clubs i mean all of those things i mean there are a variety of ways to go about it um but it, but it's something that if you don't constantly address, I think it just goes by default. And and my my fear is that I see this not just in the in the pew, but I see this in the seminary. Mm. Uh, whether it's the cost of books, you know, I, I I know books are expensive and they are expensive. So is cable TV. <laughs> you know, but I, I'm not sure that they're any more expensive than they were to me as a student in the mid 70s. Sure. When I would have, I'd have gone without an evening meal. I'd have I'd have foregone you know, an iPod or whatever it is to be able to buy books. And, you know, students come into my office. And actually, I have two offices at the seminary because my books can't be contained in one office. I can roll and the they come in and they say, how, how can you afford, you, you, you must get paid really well because how can you afford all these books? And I said, well, you know, when I was, when I was starting off in the ministry, I, I just kept on buying books. And I said, the first requirement for a good minister is a, is a, is a good wife. And if she doesn't like books, then, then forget it. She's not for you. <laughs> anyway, if you've already married her, it's too late, I said. Too you know, late. You live with <laughs> but, but if you're in a position where you can make a choice, hmm. I said, make sure you choose one that loves books. Derek, I, I had another difficulty I wanted to raise, um, and that is people in the church that do like to read, but they read the wrong things because yes. they are independent thinkers. They, they think that you would be narrow to tell them, these are good books and these are not. Here's the diet we would like to see you on. How would you, what advice would you have for a pastor that maybe has people in his congregation reading things he doesn't think are really healthy theologically? Yeah, yeah, we've uh, we we are there. We've we've got those folk, and um, you know, I, I'm not sure that I have an answer for you. Um, one of the things I've tried to do with one individual who's very generous 
and and often distributes books to people that are less than helpful um, is to try and put in in his hands a book that I think that he will like that is mm. theologically better and uh, and and you have to do that and sometimes in a subtle way um, and i've even had i've even had fellow church members do it rather than me because sometimes if I, I think if he thinks that I am saying this he's going to be suspicious that this is just you know more of Calvin um, <laughs> or whatever and um, yeah I mean that 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 does happen and uh, it depends who it is in the church who's doing that and if he's an elder doing that as, as, as the case I'm thinking about is then then that's that's tricky that's very tricky, and um, yeah, and Bible studies groups of individuals who are meeting together, and you you love the fact that they're doing that, um, but yet they're studying something that's that's pulp, right? You know, it's fluff, right. and um, uh, it's trying to get one good book in there somewhere, um, and that's where I think you need. You know, if you're in a multi-staff situation as we are, you know, you need you need the guy who's in discipleship um, to be on top of that, and somehow or other, in in the midst of all that fluff, you need to try and get some decent books. Um, but having a good bookstore and a good book table, um, you know, that that in the end is the way to do it. Because if 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 the folk are dependent on you know what's out there on the internet or what's in the blogosphere um, then then you're at the mercy of a ministry that you that you know in no way are you controlling mm. Mm. Right. we really thank you Derek for joining us joining us this morning we're just about out of time and this has been excellent just giving really practical advice um, but very informed advice so thank you very much for joining us we want to uh mention to everyone that of course you can visit our website castlechurch.org if you want to uh, read any new articles jeff has a couple up there there's one on tf torrance along with uh with one about abraham kuyper's apologetic on his theology so we want to point listeners to that you can also listen to our other programs and of course our calendar and a link to how to get a hold of us if you would like to comment so we want to thank everyone for for listening And we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center. Now, Carl Truman, he suggested that Pelagius had to have been Welsh. (laughs) You know, Carl's a headbanger. And there's only there's only there's only one thing that you can do to headbangers, you know. Let's, <laughs> let's just give them a few Tylenol and tell, tell them to go back to sleep. Um, <laughs> Carl's a dear friend, you know, but he's English. What can I say? <laughs>